Hear the word of our God. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. May you build us up by it. May it dwell in us richly. That you might do your will in us and through us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we, uh, I, I, I think, did something quite exciting. We looked at the whole book before we got to the parts of the book. And so we now, I think, have kind of this overall roadmap, not what order events are going to happen, but what are the major things that we should expect to find in here. We talked about four assumptions that Paul has as he writes this letter. Paul assumes there's a right way to do the church or order the church, and there are therefore wrong ways to be a church. Paul assumes that the church is not immune to cultural captivity. Maybe that's the one we like the least. I I don't know. We would like to think that there's them and there's us. And Paul writes this letter assuming that we aren't as different from them as we think. But he also assumes that there's a solution to that. And the solution is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ which washes and renews and brings us to God. And then fourth, he assumes that the proper response to the gospel is a godly life. That's all kind of exciting to think about, those major assumptions of the book. And now this week we look at the greeting of a letter. The dear sir, madam, sincerely, Paul. Which doesn't seem very exciting. We want to maybe jump into some of those major themes. Maybe we want to jump right in. Well, what is it that I'm culturally captive to? But we come to the word of God with humility and we say, well, the first thing we need to look at is the, the sincerely part. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Titus is one of Paul's shortest letters and has one of his most detailed greetings. Not only that, but it's written very personally to a man who has worked with Paul for years. Years prior to the writing of this letter, Titus had been part of Paul's missionary team as a young man. He was part of uh, Paul going to Jerusalem. He wasn't circumcised, and so that... Uh, spurred the apostles on to decide we're going to embrace this man without circumcision. He's been with Paul through all of that, which means he's a a bold man. Uh, He's a courageous man for God to do such a thing. A coward might say, I'll I'll just get circumcised real quick, Paul, and then, then the apostles will like me. But he didn't. He was uncircumcised and went to the circumcised. He's a strong man of faith, but he's a man who's been with Paul a long time. When the Corinthians were having issues, Paul sent Titus 
to put their church in order. He's even qualified for his job here on Crete. All of which is to say, this is a man who doesn't need Paul to introduce himself. If he just saw Paul's, with my own hand, Paul, he would know it was Paul's handwriting. He doesn't need a long introduction. So Paul must have thought, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Titus and we needed this longer introduction, this longer greeting. And as I thought and prayed about that over the past several months, why this greeting here? One thing that struck me was how appropriate this is when thinking about revival or reformation within a church that's out of order. And today I want to put before you that there are, there are three things that are necessary if a church is to be set in order, if a church is to have reform in it, biblical reform. There are three things that are necessary, and Paul's introduction of himself addresses all three issues. The, the three things that are necessary for Reformation are a firm foundation. There might be other things, by the way, but three of the things that are necessary for Reformation. A firm foundation, a consistent structure, and a humble crew. So I'm talking about Reformation as if building a structure today. Building a church structure, let's say. Spiritually speaking, you need a firm foundation, a consistent structure, and a humble crew. And how do we see in Paul's introduction of himself, his credentials, that he is indeed qualified to help us reform the church? So let's start with the first of those three things, a firm foundation. A church is decaying, a congregation, or, or a whole nation of churches, like on Crete. If the rot of society is putting structural stability of the church, the spiritual stability of the church in question, the, the first thing you need to assess is the foundation you're on. Is it crumbling? Are we even on a foundation? And cultural captivity makes that a very important question. In our own day and age, as I'm sure was true on Crete, so much is founded on what works, what we like, what we've always done. Or what society likes as a method. What people are used to. How they're used to learning in schools. Or how our entertainment catches our attention. And when we make those things our foundation, should we wonder that the church is in desperate need of foundational work? All of that is shifting sand. That, that, that's not a, an astonishing statement. All of those things are founded on the concept that whatever today works is what we want to do. Tomorrow we might shift to something else for our foundation. That, that is, by definition, shifting sand. Paul wants the church to be on a firm foundation. And what does he say in his introduction, his credentials, that show that he's the man to show us the firm foundation and help us assess our foundation? We read, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's an apostle? What does that have to do with foundation? Well, the New Testament especially emphasizes three things about the apostles. 
and we've we've kind of downplayed this in the American church. You have a an Academy Award winner uh, making a movie called The Apostle, where Robert Duvall walks into the water and baptizes himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that really, I think, speaks to how the majority of Americans, not that they've shifted their view because they saw a movie, I think the movie rightly expresses what Americans think about the apostles. That it's a continuing thing, kind of a vague, missional type of thing, but that's not what the New Testament presents. The New Testament presents qualifications to be an apostle. The apostles themselves, when they looked around and realized that there were only 11 of them, because Judas had committed suicide, what did they say? Well, let's call out from ourselves one, and here's the qualification we have to look for. He was with us for three years of Christ's personal seminary, and they witnessed his resurrection. You can go and look that up. Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22. And Paul, whom we might say, but, but Paul, talks of himself as one who was born out of time. Some have translated that one ripped out of the womb untimely. It's graphic language in the Greek. But Paul's point is not, well, there were the original apostles. They had to have been with Christ on earth. But now there's a new breed of apostles. I'm Apostle 2.0. And no longer is there the qualification to have been with Christ. So all who follow me will be more like me. No, Paul is obviously saying, I'm not supposed to be the standard for what this looks like. In fact, we even read with Bill this morning, didn't we? He says, I'm the least, apostle, I'm the least believer. Paul presents himself as the exception to the rule. The exception to the rule. Now, you might remember about a year, year and a half ago, when we started looking at Galatians, though, we saw that Paul had spent three years right after his conversion in the wilderness of Damascus and church history doesn't say anything else about it except for a bunch of pastors guessing and one of the things some of the early church fathers believed was that in that wilderness for three years Paul received personal training from Christ as one born out of time that we can't prove may or may not have been the case, but certainly he did see the resurrected Christ, didn't he? On the road to Damascus. So, this is to be a direct witness of Christ. I've never been a direct witness of Christ's resurrection. I'm indirect. I'm alive in Christ because he rose. That's the type of witness you are as well. His life is in you. That's different from the qualification for an apostle. But secondly, a direct witness wasn't enough. The New Testament also tells us that the apostles were those who were directly appointed by Christ himself. So, of course, we see that with the original 12. He chose them out of a a big group of disciples. Did he choose the holiest and most righteous of all of them? No, it never says that, does it? There were a lot of wonderful disciples. And some of them we actually are given names to and were important people in the early church. But he chose those 12 men to do a unique job. And when they replaced Judas... If you look at Acts 1, they found two men that fit our requirement, the direct witness part. But did they appoint both of them? Both men were godly men. Both men had been with Christ for three years. Both men had witnessed his resurrection. 
And having found those two men and put them forward, it is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who chose Matthias and didn't choose the other man. And it wasn't because that other man wasn't wonderful and godly. And he was probably a preacher in the early church. Probably had a congregation who loved him. But he wasn't chosen as an apostle because it has to be a direct appointment by God. And of course, Paul is directly appointed by Christ on the road and following. Those are the qualifications the New Testament gives, which indicates to us we don't continue to have apostles today. But the third thing that's important about apostles in the New Testament fits with that because we're told the apostles above anything else the apostles were chosen to be a foundation they were foundational to the church Ephesians 2.19 shows that the office of apostle with the prophets is the foundation on which Christ builds his church you You don't have to be a contractor to know. And I I don't think any of you need me to tell you. But when you're building a, a house and you lay that foundation and then you build the structure up from there, you don't get to the third floor and say, get the cement back out. We're gonna we're gonna put another foundation right here. It's not how it works. The apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church. They remain important to the church. But they don't keep showing up. They are the basis on which the true church exists. And the New Testament makes clear that the apostles understood This would be continued in the life of the church through the inspired word of God. God the Holy Spirit has, through prophets and apostles, through holy men of old, given us the firm foundation. The word of God. The word of Christ. Which is to dwell in God's people richly. And it is not to be added to or taken away from. It is the foundation for the church in all ages. And so Paul writes Titus as an apostle. Listen up, Pastor Titus. And if they question you, show them the letter, Pastor Titus. And set in order the church, Pastor Titus, on my authority. Titus is in one sense a unique, not the only one, Timothy was like him, a a unique type of man. Because he's not just a pastor like me. He's an apostolic commissioner with authority over multiple congregations on Crete. To set in order what is lacking with authority to command that from churches that have pastors and from the pastors themselves. He has the letter. He could come in and hand it to a man like me and say, this is my authority. It's apostolic authority. Titus, are you an apostle? I don't remember you being with Christ for three years. No but I'm sent by the apostles. It's apostolic authority for the reformation of the church. And that same authority demands that we submit to the epistle of Titus. Because it's apostolic authority. It's the foundation, part of that foundation, on which the church must stand. The church in our day doesn't have nearly enough Bible. And we're surprised we shift around on sand. 
may we not be that type of church. And I, I would say, it's not enough to just have your worship service filled with a lot of reading. That's, that's good. We need to understand. And we need our lives filled with a lot of reading. And our lives filled with deep contemplation of what we've read. We need to examine the foundation and look for ways in which we have cracks because we're ignoring the word. The second thing necessary for Reformation is a consistent structure. A consistent structure. And Paul ties structure and foundation closely together as any good building needs them tied closely together, of course. Because Paul presents himself as a preacher of hope. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle commissioned for this reason. And look what he says at the end of stating the reason. He says, this was, this preaching was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. He says, I am an apostle. I'm also a preacher. The structure builds up from the foundation. You don't lay another foundation, but you do put beams and load-bearing walls and all of those things above the foundation and on it. And when you have those things, there needs to not be this gap. There needs to not be this separation. You don't build the foundation and then build a structure above it that's 10 feet wider so that the supports and everything are in the sand near the foundation. We're near the foundation. We're just not on it. That often happens in the church as well, doesn't it? Well, sure, we love the Bible. It's God's word. But now we're going to build how we do things in our community over here to the side. We have the word. We have the foundation. But we're not going to build up from it. The structure's not consistent. It goes off in weird directions with nothing sure to hold it up. Maybe the structure even tries to reach out and get on the foundation of the neighbor. Cultural captivity. But that's not going to stand because what is the apostolic foundation on? The rock of Christ. And nothing else is. So the structure needs to be consistent and there's no gap. It's not that there were apostles, then they all died, and the church said, what are we going to do? We don't have apostles anymore. What do we do? We better have some kind of office. We'll call it preacher. And they'll have to figure out what it means to be a preacher and what that looks like. Because all the apostles are dead. That's not true at all, is it? Paul says, I'm I'm a preacher. If you ever doubt that Peter's a preacher, go and read the book of Acts. And both men write letters late in life, Titus and 2 Peter, where they say, the church without an apostle needs this type of preacher. This is your job. This is what it looks like. This is what you need to stand firm on. There's no gap. There's no apostolic succession we're Protestants I know we all believe that we don't believe in a Pope but there is a succession that goes all the way back to the Apostles not of that unique office but they as preachers trained and appointed the next generation of preachers and that generation was to teach The next generation. That's what Titus is. All the way down to me today. 
That sounds cocky, doesn't it? I prefer preaching on preaching at other people's churches. But I'm here today. All the way down to me today, to Pastor Magotsky today, to the chaplains on your base today. It's an amazing gospel committed. The preaching that is to be done is to build upon the word of God. It is to be faithful to it. It is to be on that foundation. That sounds old and out of date, doesn't it? Maybe there's a new method. Maybe we're smarter today. And we have a better way to put beams in a house that will hold up load-bearing walls that don't require a foundation that's like that. Is that how we think about church in America? The church organized without, without an apostle on site must stay firm to the gospel foundation But is that gospel sufficient? Look at the greeting. Look at the foundation that is carried on in the continued structure by preaching, which was committed to Paul. What does that gospel foundation look like? What does it include? Can it be relevant? Remember... All Cretans are liars. All Americans are liars. All of Adam and Eve's sons and daughters are liars by ordinary generation. Notice what Paul says about the sure foundation of the apostles that was committed to them to lay. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, all the other contractors are liars, but God lays a sure foundation that is secure. He cannot lie. And that foundation he lays is sufficient for the past as it is for the future. The Alpha and the Omega who speaks, speaks a gospel that predates history and lasts when history is no more. Do you see that in how Paul speaks of the foundational gospel here? He presents it. Past, future, and present. Past, God who cannot lie, promised it. When did God promise the hope of eternal life? In the garden? The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head? That's the first time he announced that good news to us. But Paul's telling us here it's not the first time he promised it. God promised it before, before time began. To whom did he promise it? We weren't around. It's what we call in theology the pactum salutis. The pact, the covenant of salvation made by God, the Holy Trinity, among the persons of the Trinity. And what Paul is telling us here is that the gospel goes all the way back there. That before God ever spoke, and it was, he spoke something else. The Father said, I promise when we create and they fall, I will so love the world, I'll send my son. 
And the son said, I promise that when we cre- I create the world and they rebel, I will give up my life for the elect. And the spirit promised, I will dwell in them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Before time began. It's a pretty good foundation. It's old, but it's well laid. God promised it back then, Paul says, but it's, it's a promise for the future. The hope of eternal life. It's a promise of a foundation which will stand secure for us to live when time is no more. When all these buildings crumble around us, when America, like Egypt and Babylon and Rome, is just a memory, when this whole world and all its cultures are a memory of a sad, dark time before the new heavens and the new earth, that promise continues its effect in the believer as they walk with God eternally in the shade of the day. The the beauty of an eternity with no night, no sickness, no sorrow with Him. It's a foundation, therefore, that stretches from the past to the future, but where does it touch us today? Paul presents it It is manifested now, today, through preaching. Committed to Paul. Committed to Titus. Committed to me. I left something at my office, so I I guess I can't include that been committed to me. It's a heavy burden. But it puts a strong priority on how you listen to preaching. Doesn't it? Because you got to pay attention as to whether my preaching is on the foundation or not. What if I start building off to the side. Do you notice? Will will you notice if that ever happens? What if it's on the foundation? You have to listen. Six and a half years ago, I took ordination vows. Not... Most of you were there, not all of you. But I I know those of you who were there don't have them memorized. You don't wake up in the morning and reflect on, on what I vowed back then. I don't think that that might be a little weird. I, I, I have my ordination vows, some of them, not all of them written out on my desk so that I can remember them every day when I go to work. And I was supposed to put them in my Bible. I was going to read three of them and vow them to you again this morning. But uh, I, I don't know where I put that. So the first vow I had to take is pretty much the same vow that some of you have taken as you joined this church. that I believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inerrant and inspired word of Almighty God, the only rule of faith and practice, the only foundation, in other words. Another vow is that I will teach those scriptures faithfully whatever persecution 
I receive for it. It's a terrifying vow. But I vow it. And the last one is along these lines. Do I vow we'll update it to continue oversight of this congregation on behalf of the Lord. And the emphasis there, of course, is according to the foundation, according to that structure. And I think with most pastors, I could even add continuing the oversight of this congregation, whatever persecution I receive for it or from it. I'm not saying I do. But that's how far that foundation has to go, isn't it? And that's how consistent the structure built upon the foundation has to be. Paul suffered. Peter suffered. John suffered. These men all suffered in the establishment of that foundation. They were no different than the chief cornerstone himself who gave up his life. And the preacher, and by necessary implication, the elders who are appointed in the churches to continue working on that structure must be willing to do nothing less. We have to build along the same lines, theologically. We have to endure the same attacks. There's no reform for the church without the firm foundation and the sure structure, the consistent structure. But the beautiful thing is, it's a structure of hope. Paul is a preacher of the hope of eternal life. Whatever persecution might come, ends at some point. But the gospel doesn't. Are we willing, not just me, are you willing in this culture to suffer whatever the cost to uphold the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the only Word of God, inspired and errant for your faith and how you live. The persecution you get for that will end. The good news of the gospel of Christ forever with you does not. Finally then, and flowing out of that last thought, I said that a reformation in the church can't happen, thirdly, without a humble crew. A humble crew. Preachers built on the apostolic foundation, but but the preachers aren't the crew. Maybe they're the supervisor, the project manager. But they're not the crew. Think of Ephesians 3.12. Where we're told that God gave some, not all, to be preachers. God gave some to be teachers, not all. God gave some to be evangelists, not all. And he gave them, why? To do the work of the ministry? It's actually not what it says. He gave some to do these things to establish the saints in the work of the ministry. Ephesians 3 verse 12. Go go look it up. Read it this afternoon. I'm just a project manager. But the continued structure of the church being built up by our Lord Jesus, who is the the boss, he does it through a crew. And you're part of that crew. 
But for Reformation to happen, it must be a humble crew. Titus also emphasizes your part on the crew. Titus 3 verse 8 says that it is all of our job to maintain good works. And Titus 3 verse 14 says, you know, maybe you don't know how to maintain good works. Teach them how to maintain good works. Project manager, fellow project manager, but you're the crew. And if you don't know how to maintain good works, it's my job and Bill's job to teach you how to maintain good works. But you're the crew. But it has to be a humble crew. And we see this in Paul's credentials. We, we see Paul uh, has the credential for the foundation. He has the credentials for the continued building up through preaching. But he also has the credential the credential to call on us to be a humble crew because he declares it's actually the first thing he says about himself. Paul declares himself a slave. Verse 1. Now, um, none of you are seen slave in in your Bible in front of you. If you're using your ESV, it's servant, which is slightly better, I think, than the New King James and the New American Standards bond servant. But none of those, I think, are really what Paul's saying. The, the struggle we run into is the Greek word doulos can rightly be translated slave, servant, or bond servant. And yet all of those have different nuances, don't they? A bondservant in Roman society, as actually with Old Testament Hebrew society, ironically, served seven years. And then they were done. If you served in Caesar's household, it was for 14 years and then you were done. You were still done after 14 years. Is Paul saying... I am temporarily a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a bond servant. When I'm done, I can walk away. I, I don't think that's a good translation there. I, I think it sounds nicer than slave. But the Roman view of bond servant doesn't really fit with Paul and the other apostles. Jude, James, Peter, they all call themselves do loss. They're not saying I'm serving my time then I'm free. Servants a little better than that. And the ESV talks about servant being in their preface. I love that the ESV does footnote the word do loss when they use it to the preface where it talks about the different uses. And there it talks about uh, servant being a more generic thing. The, the thing they fail to note, though, is the more generic thing servant typically is tied to someone receiving a wage. Like we might think more of a worker in a house who receives a wage. Is that what Paul, James, Jude, and Peter think of themselves? Because that third translation, slave, which all of the old translations used... This is how the ESV preface says how they determine when to use the word slave. Where absolute ownership by a master is envisaged, as in Romans 6, slave is used. I think they all should have put slave. And I've tried really hard this week to figure out why all of our modern translations don't use slave and ESV has something in the preface and I'm glad they do. The others don't always really explain but I haven't in any of them found a good rationale for softening the word from slave. 
And then I look at some of the best scholarly Greek scholar commentaries, and they all stick very emphatically with slave. And I ask myself, why are our translations not putting that? Some of you are thinking I'm making a big deal out of nothing. I'm getting somewhere here. I think, I think maybe that cultural captivity thing that's such a big deal in Titus. Maybe not cultural captivity. Maybe that's too harsh. Cultural fear. Because something horrific does pop into our minds with slavery. Horrific. And if we think of God as the owner, all we can envision is him holding a whip. And so we we don't want our culture to think we're saying anything bad like that, and so we've softened it. I understand that thought, but I, I think it's cultural fear. You can't share the gospel without the word slave. I mean, you can. But you know what I mean, don't you? We were slaves of sin. Christ died for us. We've been in bondage. We're set free in the gospel. And as, as the ESV preface beautifully says, you can't translate Romans 6 without the word slave. We are slaves of righteousness in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what Jude, who grew up as a half-brother of Jesus Christ, is saying in Jude. That's what James who was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ and grew up with him, and was the head preacher of the churches of Jerusalem in the book of Acts, is saying about himself. And that's what Peter is saying about himself. They all say, let me tell you my credentials. I'm a slave of God. Oh, mm, we don't like how that sounds. See, that's my fear. I think in very subtle ways our cultural captivity isn't in obvious ways. It's in subtle ways. And my fear is even in gospel churches today, when it, when it comes to how we identify or view ourselves as individuals, we do have a line we don't want to cross because it's too degrading. Beloved, the crew needs to be humble. And Paul says to the crew who's going to work on this church project of reformation, I am a slave. Do you think you're better than Paul? Let me, let me phrase the first verse of this a little differently. Let me, let me paraphrase what he's saying. He's saying, I am not my own, but belong, body and soul. Body and soul, that's, as ESV's preface beautifully phrases it, absolute ownership. I am not my own, but belong, body and soul for a seven-year period to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. No, no, it's not. It's certainly not bond serpent, is it? In life and in death. Absolute ownership. But think of who the master is. When you think of who the master is, while requiring humility, there are few things that are more wonderful to cry out to the world. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me, who humbled himself, though he had all the right to the praise and worship and glory and adoration and fame of heaven beside God the Father, nonetheless humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. 
He humbled Himself till He experienced hell for you. He experienced what your slavery to sin demanded for you. And I belong to Him. I belong to Him. I never have to pay that anymore. And the world, the flesh, and the devil can never tell me we own you anymore. You don't own me. Jesus owns me. I'm a slave of God. But notice, isn't it interesting? He uses God here, slave of God. But then this beautiful thing, just a few lines down, he declares, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then later in the letter, the only time this appears, this phrase in Paul's letters, God, our Savior. I'm a slave of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are, are you humble enough to rejoice in that? If you're on the right foundation, it's good, it's good words. It feels right. It feels secure to say, I'm a slave of God. If you dislike that thought, examine your foundation. And examine what structure you're building in your own life. You may be too proud. And I'm going to say this very strongly. If you don't like admitting you're a slave of God by the grace of Christ, you may be too proud for the household of faith. Which, if you're already a a true believer, means you are sliding the wrong direction. And you need to repent as in the day you first repented. Well, beloved, so much more we could say, but elect of God, as you profess the truth of the true foundation clinging to the preached promises of eternal life in Christ Jesus, I tell you today the good news of the Reformation that will come to the church when we follow this and cling to it. It's something you get right now, humble crew. The grace, mercy, and peace that is yours today from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, which rests upon all those who belong as true sons and daughters to our faithful master, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.